Thanks for coming on the podcast, man. Thanks for having me. Um, lots of things I want to cover, so I'm going to get straight into it, right? In today's world, you can easily get cancelled for even a joke that you may have made. So people avoid, like comedians have, a, you know, they avoid even make making jokes about certain things. And television hosts, whoever, like even at uh, workplaces, people are very careful with regards to what they say or even talk about. You have decided to enter into the world and pretty much everything you talk about is quite controversial. So my question is, why? Why are you doing what you do? It's interesting that that's your perception because from my perspective, I feel, I feel as if I'm censoring myself on as many topics as, as these other people are or as typical people are and only voicing my perspective when I'm so, I, I, I'm so shocked by something that I can't hold my tongue. So for example, reparations, right? Five years ago, nobody thought that it could enter the political mainstream, not the people who were for it, not the people who were against it. Five years later, 2019, we're talking about it in Congress. Almost every Democratic candidate has said they would sign a bill to study and consider reparations. That's a huge shift, right? And, it, and I, I, I felt I had to flag that shift, you know, like Obama was opposed to reparations. We don't think of him as a caveman. And yet in 2019, if you, if you opposed reparations as, as I did, you're painted as if you're in this tiny minority, right? As if you have this fringe view that the solid majority of Americans and something like a third of black people themselves hold. So that just was too shocking uh, a disparity between the reality on the ground and the, the sentiments of the chattering classes that I felt I had to say something and that there weren't that many people that were going to say it. So, so I still feel that I'm protecting myself from, from the cruelty of cancel culture much of the time. But but you like you just spoke about reparations. I wanted to get to that a bit later down the track. But now that we are talking about it, we can we we, we can talk a little bit about reparations. You said about thirty percent of black people aren't for reparations, but by that definition, seventy percent of black people are for it. Well, no, something like fifty percent are for it, and then twenty percent are undecided. Yeah. Okay, but still, majority are for it. That would potentially mean the majority are for it. So uh, what's your argument against it? Well, my argument against it is different depending on what you mean by the term. Mm -hmm. Reparations has become an umbrella term for very different things. Okay. So if it's a check... What, what, so so you, uh, maybe you can define what is, what is a reparation you're against? Well, I'm against... Well, what, what I'm for is reparations paid directly to people who are harmed okay. by legalized racism. What that means is someone like my grandfather, born in the Jim Crow South, treated explicitly as a second-class citizen, denied opportunities uh, of various kinds. And the key word there is directly harmed. 
this is you know reparations worked works best when you're giving it directly to the people who are harmed as in the case of the japanese americans who were interned during world war ii uh holocaust survivors you could argue that i've been indirectly harmed just like you could argue that the grandchild of a holocaust survivor is indirectly harmed uh but we generally don't give reparations in that case because it, it becomes too unwieldy to, to really trace the arrow of harm gets hard sociologically. So I'm for reparations paid directly to people who are harmed, which at this point would be much older black folks born in the South. Uh, I'm against reparations as a check cut to every black American with slavery in the memo line for a few reasons. One, Virtually none of the problems that black people disproportionately face that we should want to solve are the consequence of a lack of cash. Therefore, they, will not, they would not be remedied by a check. Secondly, something that seems important before you get it can often seem insulting or unimportant after you get it. And the race issue is a paradigm case of this. It happens over and over again. So, for example, if you had asked any black person before Obama was elected, will there be a black president in your lifetime? Most people said no. Why did they say no? Because America was too racist. We weren't ready for it yet. We got a two-term black president named Barack Hussein Obama who had a black wife, black kids, etc. And... In retrospect, we don't even view it as important anymore. Indeed, if you suggest that Obama was a watershed moment in American history in terms of sort of getting past racism nationally, you get something close to an eye roll from the left at this point. So something that seemed important before you got it gets redefined. The goalposts get shifted after, after you get it. I think the same thing would happen if all black people got a check with reparations in the memo line Five years ago, we didn't think it was going to happen. Once it happens, it would become nothing. Okay, two things. One, um, Germany actually paid and continued to pay reparations uh, to d people who were directly harmed, who are alive, but also the descendants. And that system, it, 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 it worked. So the notion that it, is, it might not work for black Am Americans. Is it really backed by uh, a test case? Or is it, like, wh why do you think it won't work? What, because you mentioned something like... Define work. In the sense of, um, you know, there was a hurdle put forth by the system for a group of people, uh, so they couldn't progress. There they are... I mean, the effects of racism uh, and, and the slavery era is, it wasn't felt by just uh, one generation, many generations afterwards. And, you know, a lot of people who were directly affected, uh, you know, are not alive. So similar thing with Germany, people who were directly affected by uh, uh, racism died. So it's the families and descendants, the only one. Who, they didn't have the starting point they would have normally had. And by having a financial, financial incentive, they get some... Uh, uh, like money can't really buy out of 
past wrongdoing, but it gives a bit of an incentive because we live in a capitalistic society, right? An incentive to what? To yeah. have a slightly head start, if if that is helpful. For example, if a, a, a certain family that is directly affected by uh, slavery, say, uh, you know, multiple generations later, they haven't been able to have a, uh, a you know, uh, societal st- start because the grandparents were slaves and then they were put in ghettos or etc etc generation after generation they never had uh, an opportunity to get out of the poor class if there's a financial incentive wouldn't that by definition give them an opportunity to get to the middle class it's an empirical question and i think the evidence from the war on poverty of the late 60s and early 70s where we spent you know, billions of dollars, not all of which was in the form of just cash handouts, but m- you know, much of it was. We didn't see uh, you know, a, a kind of flourishing in the black community as a result of that. Uh, if anything, you know, it helped people survive day to day. In general, I, I mean, there's very little evidence that a one-time cash payment, even a kind of substantial one is going to fix the structural problems like the the fact that public education is a zoo in many cases in inner cities um you know the fact that healthcare costs are are far more expensive in America than in our peer nations you know, but that's I, that's I, I, uh, you know, but if you're poor that's going to have a disproportionate effect on you opposed to somebody who's in the middle class right if if there are structural issues the poorest of a society mm. feels the worst right so i mean we but we, we we tried this in the late 60s we just gave people cash like we tried and it was in the form of welfare but it was disproportionately to black people and it was at least in the beginning it was there were like no strings attached and what happened nothing good it's not clear that it solved any problems um, so so you know i'm not sure why it would this time okay so to that point you you also talk about the progress made by black people Mm. right and if you look at uh stephen pinker's book a better angels of our nature and there's many such data available world is less poor than it has been and the some of the you know many of the government programs that put out there to help poor people it has worked now i don't have the specific data right in front of me to say that what what america did in the 60s for black people didn't work but you would admit uh, the poor American black in the 60s versus poor American black right now, the proportion has changed, right? There are less black people in abject poverty compared to then. There's still a lot, but so something must have worked. It doesn't imply that it was the government programs, though. Correlation it, it, does it, not imply causation. Sure, but yeah. it also doesn't, you can't say that it didn't work completely. Well, I mean, the question of what caused, what has caused, like, the upward mobility, I mean... But you have to consider that it may have had a positive impact. Well, Can you consider that or no? N- n- no, because of the, I mean, if you look at what happened, actually, if you look at the timeline, 
welfare gets rolled out in the 60s, just before the great upswing in crime, the great upswing in unwed births of the 70s, I actually don't think welfare caused that. I think that was a coincidence. But there was almost, it's almost impossible to find a positive trend that directly came after the expansion of the welfare state under Lyndon Johnson. The positive trends you know, I, I was pointing to in my talk have been in the past two years, uh, past two decades, three decades. So your position you know, I, I think on it's this? orthogonal. I mean, I, I don't think cash payments are, are very good or very bad. Whatever effect they're having is minimal in either direction. And I think it's a distraction. Right. So your, your view is a bit different to Larry Elder's view, because I believe Larry thinks that what the Clintons did um, and some of, the, some of the policies of the 60s, 70s, 80s and 90s impacted, uh, you know, black communities in the negative sense. Maybe, maybe marginally. But I think that I think the narrative that welfare destroyed the black family is very much overblown on the right. I, I don't. I mean, when you look at the full evidence, it it doesn't all add up in my in my which, opinion. Which which is a you know this is a good uh, point for me to bring up. Um, you have said many times over that politically you're fluid. You mm. don't really fit into one group, mm. right? Uh, interesting thing that I've noticed is um, the right uses you as well. You're a registered Democrat. But look at what he is saying, mm. and they prop you up. Mm. And the Democrats put you down for the fact that the right is propping you up. Mm. What is that like? How, how does that make you feel as somebody who's just freely speaking? Very awkward. Um, it's awkward to not have a political home, but I'm not a fundamentally political person. I'm, you know, I came into politics through philosophy, and I, I write and I think, but. I've never been all that enthused about electoral politics. It's important and uh, it's crucial to talk about and think through, but I'm more concerned with the ideas that survive the four-term election cycle, the four-year election cycle, rather, because in the long run, getting the issues right has a big impact on, you know, like shaping the debate has a big impact on policies down the line. So that's what I'm more interested in. So in a way, it makes sense that neither, I don't have a clear home in, in either party. Uh, however, I, I, Democrats have tended to put forth more compelling candidates in my lifetime. Right. Yeah. So how do you then avoid being a prop? for the Republicans or for the right wing? Um, because uh, I, if you look at all the Simple, interviews, just say what you believe, right. even if it contradicts what right wingers want to think, which I do. <laughs> um, interesting fact I noticed that all the interviews that you have been uh, invited to, there is a center right. Uh, you, have, you get a higher proportion of interviews and opportunities to talk in that segment than any sort of media outlet that's left. So it's interesting, like Dave Chappelle's recent sketch got a lot of play on right-wing Twitter. Why is that? Is that because Dave, Dave Chappelle is a conservative or a right-wing? I don't think so. Anything but, right? It's because 
uh, there is a massive self-censorship going on right now, and it's asymmetric in the sense that if you have a very radically left-wing opinion, like uh, uh, unsupported by evidence, that the carceral system in America is racist front to back, permeated by white supremacy, you could feel pretty comfortable voicing that You'll get pushback from the right, of course. You'll get trolls. Um, in the worst case, you'll get threats. But your social status in elite circles, if you're in academia, if you're in media circles, will be all right. In fact, it might even go up a little bit. Um, if you have extreme right-wing opinions, the opposite is true. Uh, I'm not endorsing either of those extremes. I'm just pointing out an asymmetry. But what, what that does is it, it opens up a space for people who have a little bit of a thick skin and articulate a kind of centrist e perspective. Uh, there, there's essentially a scarcity of what I'm doing, which explains why, you know, metaphorically, the price of me is high. Right, well, why I'm getting more attention than I otherwise would. It's actually, it actually shouldn't be the case that I'm getting this much attention. It's, it's a comment on how deeply we have failed in academia, to and and media and uh, you know in general, the quote unquote elite to really deal with perspectives that are commonly held, supported by a good amount of evidence. Um. It's just a testament of our of a failure of our national conversation, I think. So, do you think um, America has a systematic um, racism problem? Uh, I think the idea of systemic racism. Uh, America has racism. The world, the whole world, has racism. Uh, America has a unique history with racism in the sense of chattel slavery for 200, almost 250 years, 100 years of, roughly 100 years of Jim Crow. And um, so there's that. There are still racists. Racism is real. Do we have quote unquote systemic racism? The idea being that our systems are permeated by racism that is not quite visible to the naked eye, that is not quite a matter of individual white people denying black people things because they are black, but is this kind of diffuse uh, force that holds black people back without being able to directly pinpoint it on a particular person. Uh, I think there's two things worth noting. One. The concept of systemic racism came from a book in 1967 by Stokely Carmichael and Charles Hamilton called Black Power. At the time, it didn't mean quite what it means today. The way they described it in the book, they still described it in terms of individual racists committing racist acts, like a real estate agent who would not show you a particular apartment, for example. That, that was their definition of systemic racism. It still involved people that you could concretely point to. All they meant by it was that it wasn't someone burning your house down. They just meant that it was subtle. Go back and read that. It's morphed at this point to become a kind of just a repository, just a, a way of lazily indicting our society 
without having to actually prove your point. The second thing I will say is if, if America is systemically racist, then that racism is not very powerful because black people have still managed to make enormous progress just in the past two decades. Incarceration is more than cut in half for black men in their 20s and below. If the, you know, if, if the, if the prison system is designed to keep, to, to put black men in it and keep them there, it's doing a terrible job of that in recent decades. Um, if the healthcare system is supposed to be racist, it's, it, it's doing a very poor job of it because the likelihood of, of elderly black people dying from heart disease has almost cut in half since I was a kid. And it's also gone down by almost a third for cancer and diabetes. Why do you think, because it, um, the, the drops you're talking about, uh, if you look at the trends, uh, pre-2000, the trends did look like there is a systemic issue. Um, and well, no, no, actually. I mean, I, I just started there because it was the turn of the millennium and, right. and it was, it was, it's an easy benchmark. But the trends in general have been good since long before. Right, right. Yeah. So, uh, uh, is, but you said from, from, from 2000 to now, there's this massive drops. Is that because more people have been talking about racism or do you think it's just a general trend? No, I don't think it has very much. I mean, so there's there's this there's this assumption that black well-being is a one-to-one function of the amount of racism in society. The analogy is that black America is like a weather vane and racism is like wind. Right? So how black America is doing is just a straightforward reflection of where the wind is blowing in terms of what ra- what white people how white people feel and think about. Nothing could be further from the truth. Racism is one input that determines how black people are doing, but there are like hundreds of others, like how's the economy doing? Um, how, how are black people themselves, like, like what, what, resourcing, what inner resources are they marshalling to move up in society, right? We're talking about human agents here, not merely weather vanes. So uh, there, 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 there'd be a tendency for people to point out when I point out all these positive trends. Well, oh, see, that, that's just more proof that, you know, we've been talking about more racism more and it's been working, right? I think that is, that's a lazy assumption because it, it, it presupposes that it could be nothing else. It, you know, it, it, it could not be that actually crime has gone down in the black community um, because of, like, internal efforts. It kind of takes black agency out of the picture entirely. The point being, it's an empirical question why the trends have progressed as much as they have. And by the way, with the rise of Trump, it would be very hard to say that our rhetoric has gotten better about race, right? If anything, it's, it's, it's either stagnated or gotten worse. It's a tricky question whether racism has gone up or down in the past five years. But it's not a tricky question whether life expectancy is up, deaths are down, education is higher, upward mobility is better, prison stats are down. So... That's what I would say to that. <laughs> so, it, um, but there, there are some rather clear examples that people point out. For example, if you look at Hollywood, um, it took a very long time for mainstream Hollywood. I mean, there were certain movies that were just, you know, produced, directed, um, and acted by black actors, but they were kind of like B-grade, uh, separate genre on its own. 
Um, but now there is a tendency. There are a lot more uh, black actors getting main roles, the directing, writing, etc. So there is a clear shift there. And that came as a result of people talking about, uh, you know, the industry stifling or not giving black actors a real chance. Or am I just misreading what's happening now? Um, I think that's probably right. Uh, it's, you know, the, the domain of cinema in Hollywood is one that is unique in the sense that it's a very, uh, I mean, the, it's a very small community. <laughs> the number of black people in Hollywood is, I think Jamie Foxx has a joke that there's like 10 black men in Hollywood. You know, uh, it's more susceptible to the biases of the chattering classes because it's such a cloistered and elite community. If that community develops some new norm around diversity and racism, it's actually pretty easy for them to implement it given that there are many talented black actors, they can just do that. When you're talking about the majority of what matters, which is, you know, everyday people who are never going to be Hollywood actors, um, it's not it's not as easy to assume that it's just because there are fewer Archie Bunkers in society that all of these positive trends have occurred. Especially the fact that these trends have been persisting through the Trump era at minimum suggests that it's not and I, th I think frankly it would be an alien if you went back to Martin Luther King and Bayard Rustin and A. Philip Randolph and these great civil rights leaders in the 50s and 60s and asked them you know is is black flourishing a straightforward function of the amount of racism in society I think they would look at you cross-eyed in the sense that Clearly, they wanted the barriers to be gone, but the idea that black people will do well in society to the extent that white people feel warm towards us, I think would be alien. I see. It's interesting you say that. So, for example, I've had many conversations with um, uh, people about a particular religion, Islam. I ended up making a movie. Uh, with with our good friend Jay Shapiro about it, um, there is a there's a thing w during research we we found is when you see a country like Pakistan, which used to be part of India, which was uh, you know f uh, it was formed relatively recently, and it was part of being a Pakistani is directly related to being part of a religion. So your cultural identity, there, your culture is, you know, recent history. So you, your identity is part of being a Muslim is connected to being a Pakistani. So I feel like there is a black cultural identity which you have to uh, acknowledge and understand and really talk about your history of slavery and all those points that uh, you know many black academics and you know black, black people in general just talk about day in day out um, you're trying to point out those things exist racism exists but you want to talk about some uh, you know progressions made um, so your way of looking at this sort of 
positivity is fundamentally different because what I see on the other end is like Colin Kaepernick's activism is celebrated. Uh, you know, Jay-Z's billionaire status is celebrated, but not uh, black people as a whole, a, a progress is, is not necessarily celebrated per se. How do you, how does a black person when, you know, as a community, it's so important to, uh, you know, identify all the struggles you had, right? What you're saying is, no, we, we need to have a fundamental different approach. How does a young black man take what you say, but at the same token, stay true to or remember, uh, you know, everything that's happened uh, without getting alienated from society? It's a long-winded question, but you yeah, get what I mean. Yeah, I think I know what you mean. Um, I think you have to be able to say two things at once. One is to understand the unique history of oppression that black people have faced. And, you know, one of the reasons I don't emphasize that as much as other people, I think, is because I got a lot of it as a kid, especially from my grandparents. They showed me the names of our ancestors in the wills of slaveholders because they were passed down because they were property. And I got a lot of that. I was steeped in it. And in that sense, I take it for granted. I think there is, there is, uh, I mean, I think there are a lot of people, particularly white people who in the, in the last five years with this resurgence of anti-racism are learning almost for the first time, the, the real litany of, uh, anti-black policies, not just slavery, but redlining, blockbusting, segregation, etc. So you have to be able to acknowledge that but also understand that the story that a people tells itself about who that people is should not be bound only in the suffering, right? There's a long tradition of black people highlighting the progress that has been made without necessarily having to compare or measure ourselves against the yardstick of white outcomes. You know, Booker T. Washington used to talk about the massive, up from slavery, right? The massive progress that has been made. Martin Luther King in the, in the, in the, in the 60s acknowledged the massive progress that had been made with police brutality, even at a time when you might reasonably say we shouldn't be noting progress because it's still so bad. Bayard Rustin was the same way. He was quick to acknowledge progress because they were pragmatic people. They wanted to know what worked and what didn't and they were aware of what didn't work. They weren't tempted to throw it under the rug. But when something good happened, they wanted to say, what did we do right here? How do we repeat this? Moreover, I think, it, I think it's an unhealthy attitude to have to the only country, like m most black people are going to live in America their whole lives. We're not going anywhere. The fantasies of, of returning to Africa have long since become irrelevant. So the question is, what attitude do we adopt towards the only country we're going to live in? Is it one that makes a religion out of the history of our own oppression in the sense that the same way a Christian learns of the crucifixion of Christ every Sunday, every Sunday, hammers it down, hammers it down. Are we going to do that with slavery? Are we going to essentially treat the, the history of anti-black racism as a religious catechism or are we going to acknowledge that history not try to hide it but 
treat it more like we treat the history of World War One, in the sense that we acknowledge its importance, but it is not the bedrock of our identity as a people. It need not be. We can tell a story that is much more optimistic, much more forward-looking, without minimizing the history of racism. Right. So, do you worry that um, by talking about progress, that it minimizes the progress that is yet to be made? Um, it, it could. I mean, I think you can just acknowledge, for example, that we've, we've more than half the incarceration rate for young black men while still acknowledging that we want it to drop much more. And we can do that by uh, stop, you know, stopping putting people in jail for victimless drug crimes. Um, th there's many things that we can do to, to, to remedy that situation, but you just have to, you know, the, the claim that progress has been made is not the same as the claim that we're there so we can rest easy. Right, right. Um, you made a comment earlier. Uh, uh, you get accused of acting white or a range of names called uh, uh, how do you deal with that and does that affect your thinking uh, it doesn't affect my thinking I don't like it I'm a very normal person in the sense that I dislike being insulted to my face um, and uh, you know I'd rather not pretend that my skin is so thick that nothing gets to me I think it's disingenuous however um, uh, you know, it's hard for me to name a single interesting black thinker from the past 150 years who has not at some point been accused of acting white, saying what white people want to hear. Martin Luther King, James Baldwin, even Malcolm X at times, Frederick Douglass, W.B. Du Bois. Uh, I don't think you can think of a single, a single example of a black intellectual who is so undeniably black that they could not be criticized from the blacker wing of black politics. All right. Um, so I want to talk uh, a little bit about um, how I, I shared with you before this um, uh, podcast um, a link to a really well-publicized Australian documentary um, about a professional... Australian football player Adam Goods. Um, it was a very big piece of news in Australia. Well, rest of the world, it may not be the case. But um, the point I wanted to make with that, uh, the reason I sent it to you, is that was a clear case for some people. That was a very clear case of racism. Now, for, for context, for some of our listeners, um, we have this celebrated indigenous football player. Uh, towards the end of his career, uh, one of his, uh, uh, you know, when he scored a goal, he had this celebration, which was uh, an indigenous war dance. And, you know, he had this imaginary spear and he would look at the audience and he would do it. And, you know, sports, people get, you know, quite heated. And at a point, people started booing him uh, relentlessly. It didn't matter what he did. And majority of the people booing happened to be white uh, and majority of the audience is white. Why were they booing exactly? Uh, they, the, the, they were booing him 
because he was actually very good. He won the Brownlow medal. Like, he was one of the best of the best. You know, he's a legend in that and game. he was beating He was team. beating the other yeah, teams. Yeah. And whenever he scored a goal, he would have this war dance. And it got to a point where he couldn't even play. Like, he would enter the stadium and people were booing him. Um, and I think it uh, went beyond just booing an opposition player. And people were making saying quite racist things, including there's this famous incident where there's a young kid um, called him a monkey. Uh, talking, I think the kid was like 13 or 15 or whatever. And, you know, that kind of, it got very racist very quickly. Um, there's a documentary made about it. And it had, a, I think Sundance or one of the bigger festivals had like a 10-minute standing ovation. Then eventually the film went to the public. Um, opening weekend, it, was, it wasn't even in the top 10. Like people weren't paying money to see this story, although it was beautifully produced, a great documentary. Um, so my question to you is, um, is there a, um, when you talk about something so much, is there a negative impact that real issues, real, uh, you know, racism becomes, it's fatigued, like people don't want to hear any more of it? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think people become jaded to an issue that is talked about too much, and they become skeptical about an issue that, you know, like, you can only hear so many accusations of racism that turn out to be baseless before you begin to assume when you hear an, ac uh, an accusation of racism that it's probably baseless, right? Like, I, I started out having all of the cultural priors to take every accusation of racism seriously. I came from a pretty liberal family, um, a, you know, a black and Puerto Rican family where, like, racism was talked about, not, not often, but, like, everyone has a story, and I, I had none of the sort of... None of none of the life experiences that would would predict that I would be skeptical of an accusation of racism. Everything was the opposite. However, as I've grown older and I've seen incident after incident where someone is accused of being a racist for something they either patently did not say or some clear misunderstanding of what they said, it's gotten to the point where when the Jesse Smollett hoax happened... I was very open to being skeptical to it in a way that I would not have been five, ten years ago. Why? Well, it's a consequence of just like so many repeated incidents of racism in the public sphere that turn out not to be so. And I think that that happens all across the nation. I don't know as much about the Australian case. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's certainly possible that that was, that's a consequence of you know, Australian society sort of failing to catch up on the racism, on the anti-racism norm. You know, I, I don't know, but there's certainly that effect. Um, so the Michael Brown case was, I mean, is significant because that is, um, you mentioned this in many podcasts, that case was uh, like a turning point for you. Um, I don't want to tell your story. What's the context? Well, I heard it happened in 2014. Michael Brown was uh, killed in Ferguson after an altercation with a police officer. 
he was unarmed and it was right around the birth of the black lives matter movement and it ended up being probably the biggest flashpoint of the black lives matter movement and people were posting hashtag blm on facebook whatnot you had to pick a side at the time i remember what it felt like you had to you had to take a side and instinctively i took the black lives matter side i i you know the idea that people would be exaggerating this as a racist incident just almost wasn't in my mental vocabulary. Uh, so I just instinctively assumed that where there was smoke, there was fire. He killed this young man because he was black. He wouldn't have done it if he was white. And then I, I remember talking about it with my roommate at the time, who was a white guy from Arizona and one of my best friends. And he was skeptical. And I remember being a little blown away that he was skeptical. The idea that you could be skeptical of, of this kind of thing was sort of alien to me. So then I decided to stay up one night and read the entire testimony from both sides, from the police officer and from uh, Michael Brown's friend, who was an eyewitness. And I came away thinking that there was no opinion I could come to or that anyone could come to that was not merely a reflection of your own pre-existing political beliefs. That it was basically a Rorschach test for your politics. Um, so I became agnostic on the issue. I, like, I don't know what happened here. Either the cop's right or, or the friend is right. On, on, on that point, the cop had a reason to lie because if not, he would have been accused of murder. That what's the incentive of the friend to lie? To paint his to paint his best friend in a positive life after his death to 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 uh rehabilitate his friend's reputation as not a thug you know no my friend did not reach for your gun which would have given you a reason to shoot him no he did not walk towards you menacingly and punch you he was a good kid he was troubled but he was a good kid he didn't reach for your gun you shot him unfairly that's an enormous emotional incentive Right. And as it as it turned out, when Eric Holder did the report, he found with like, you know, some 30 eyewitnesses that the cop story was right. And then it became, you know, but then there was there, there was a there was a um, but there was yeah, there was the also Ferguson, the Ferguson um, police department was um, investigated or something. That's, that's right. Didn't there a report that came there out just saying there was a systematic issue? That's right. There were two separate reports. One indicted the police department in general yeah. for systemic racism. One exonerated the cop in the particular instance. I mean, cops getting exonerated, that's uniquely an American thing. I don't think it, you know, I mean, uh, there are lots of um, uh, African-Americans that have been killed by police. And but it also there are lots of white Hispanic people that have been killed by the police and police generally walk squat free i mean just yesterday i was speaking to again our friend jay and he was uh, saying how many people do you think uh, nypd killed uh, last year or something and coming from australia the answer should be zero like nobody should be killed by the police but the number seven came up with pride saying well, you know it's great it's an unfair comparison well let me say two things it's a very unfair comparison Two things. One, it is a big problem. Police departments generally investigate themselves, yes. which makes no sense. I agree. If, an, if a plane crashes, the, the, the Delta is not going to investigate itself. We, we understand there's a conflict of interest there. We would bring outside investigators. 
Um, so in that sense, there is a problem with uh, the, 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 the justice component of what happens to the police on this end. That has to be remedied. At the same time, it is a glib comparison, I think, to know how, many, how few people die in other countries. So for example, when a school shooting happens, everyone talks about how crazy it is that we have this gun culture in America. We're unique in the whole world. Uh, we have more guns than people. This is a uniquely American problem, incomparable to any other country in the world. That is true. It's a consequence of how many guns we have, how easy it is to get a gun. Imagine what it's like to police a gun culture and how different it is than policing Australia or Japan. When you pull over a, a suspect in America, you have like a reasonable expectation that they could have a gun. Cops get killed, dozens of cops get killed every year. That doesn't happen in other countries either. So the 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 like the quickness with which a cop pulls out his gun in America ought not be compared to the way cops can behave in a country where almost no criminals have guns, where very few have guns, right? Oh, yeah, that's 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 an interesting way of putting it. Um I think I just got schooled. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that one. <laughs> All right. So you mentioned in, in one of your essays that the maiden, maiden uh, white household earns just 65% more income than its black counterpart, but this does not necessarily fail uh, of, for all America. This doesn't mean it is a direct uh, uh, um, a result of history or racial discrimination. You use Singapore as an example for this. Um, you know, they were... Uh, Raided by the Portugal uh, uh, Portuguese in the 17th century and colonized by the Britain British in the 19th century. Today, Singapore is wealthier than both Portugal and Britain. Um, to use what you just said with regards to me comparing uh, America and American gun culture, etc., to someone like uh, somewhere like Australia, is comparing what happened to a country like Singapore to America, an American, uh, sort of the uh, African-American uh, economy. Is it a fair comparison? I don't think that's what my comparison was. My, my point invoking Singapore was a point about the wealth of nations. Right. It was an argument against the idea that the wealth of America, mm -hmm. that, that we would not be a wealthy country if not for slavery. So I'm, I, I was pointing out why, why wealth, why... <laughs> why certain countries are wealthier than others. I mean, there, there are some people who seem to, who, who speak as if there was like a pot of gold in the world and the first countries to take it and enslave other people are the ones that became rich. And that's why the rich countries today are rich and poor countries are poor. That, I mean, that's very hard to square with the existence of countries like Singapore, for example. And, and the fact that they're wealthier than, you know, Portugal, which enslaved more people in, in, in the New World than any other country. That was my point there. It was not... But, but, right. the, but the larger point, the point about income was that disparities are normal, even, even large ones, right? So... But, but, but okay, so just, just, to, just, just to, with regards to that point, if you take into account the number of countries that you know, Portuguese and uh, British invaded. Uh, after they left, how many of those countries have been able to 
be another Singapore. Singapore is not Very necessarily the, that's what I'm saying. So is it, isn't that then going against your argument? Singapore is an outlier. Uh, sorry, Singapore is just an exception, right? But the rest of them suffered from the hands of colonization. Well, they all Singapore also suffered from the hands of colonization. But Singapore is one of in, compared to the rest of it. I would say ninety percent of the countries that were colonized didn't come out of that. Yes, but um, if you if you want to explain why they didn't come out of it by reference to the colonization, which is to say, if you're saying colonization is the cause of the later dysfunction of, of the country. You have to account for the cases in which colonization was there and the latter dysfunction didn't happen, which suggests that it's much more complicated. If you look at the difference between the Ivory Coast and Ghana after they were both liberated the same year, the Ivory Coast ended up flourishing much more than Ghana did. Why? Clearly, colonization, the constant, can, can explain the variable of which country did better. It had to do with which economic policies they undertook and the way they structured their economies right nation building is hard especially if you if, if you've never really had to do it before if you have these weird borders because of the way in which colonization carved up the country in awkward ways you know across ethnic groups all that stuff matters it's not that it's not as if colonization is irrelevant it's it's that colonization, slavery, exploitation are one of myriad factors that go into whether a country becomes successful and wealthy. So the way, the way it's talked about in America is that slavery is the source of our wealth, the bedrock of our economy. You can't imagine the American economy and American wealth without slavery. I don't think that really holds up. Okay. Um, I want to go back to a point that I didn't get to uh, talk in detail, which is the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, do you think the movement helped um, the cause that they're fighting for? Or is it hindering? Because some um, people want to call Black Lives Matter movement uh, uh, you know, a terrorist organization or a backdrop for violence. No, I think that's, that's hyperbole. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, so they've, the Black Lives Matter movement has had various successes on the issue of police killing specifically. We didn't even know how many black people were getting killed or how many Americans in general were getting killed before like 2015 when Washington Post and The Guardian started tabulating it. That was a consequence more or less of the Black Lives Matter movement. They've done work with negotiating police contracts in a way that is more fair to uh, citizens that might be you know, liable to police violence. All of those are successes and I think are to be celebrated in terms of increased transparency um the question is uh whether those uh, <laughs> there are two problems with black lives matter one is that their concern is not really for black lives in general and this will sound like a right-wing talking point because it is one um black lives matter is not very concerned with whether crime went up or down in a black community if homicide went up you would not hear about it from black lives matter even as the number one cause of death for young black men is homicide not from the police but generally from other young black men um secondly i i reject the name and the framing of black lives matter 
for similar reasons that Martin Luther King rejected the name Black Power, uh, even if he agreed with some of their aims. Likewise, I agree with some of Black Lives Matter's aims, the, the wins that I talked about just before. Implicitly, it is claiming if you don't agree with us about policy, you don't think Black Lives Matter. It's, it's a provocation. It's like, um, it's saying the issue turns on whether you think black lives matter. And it, it is also, I mean, it, the problem with identity politics in general has no clearer test case than black lives matter, which is identity politics essentially says, I am what I am, which explains my view and makes me right. That's George Packer's formulation, which I think is quite good. I am black, which explains what I think about politics. And not only that, the fact of my black experience makes me right about any issue that touches on race. So, um, activism in its nature, uh, it makes society uncomfortable. It challenges norms. It, it puts forward certain things that may inconvenience people like uh, you know whether they block a bridge or um, come up with a name like Black Lives Matter isn't that inherently good for a movement because as you said for the successes they've achieved will they be would they be as successful as they are in the things that they are successful without that provocation what's good for their success as a movement may not be good for society as a whole. Ultimately, you have to ask what a movement would do if it had the power to do it. How would Black Lives Matter deal with the issue of policing, right? So, I mean, Black Lives Matter believes roughly that law and order rhetoric is a kind of holdover form of white supremacy. It's, if not, it's not the same as burning a cross on a black family's lawn. But when it, when a, when a politician gets up there and talks about restoring order to our community, they're really talking about roughly putting black people in jail, uh, regardless of whether they ought to be in jail and not fixing the structural reasons why they might commit crime in the first place. Yada yada yada. So that's. That's roughly what they think. At the same time, every poll of black people has shown that they are more concerned with law and order than white people, which is to say crime is a bigger concern for the typical black American than it is for the typical white American when asked, how would Black Lives Matter deal with the issue of crime if they could? I think not well. Um, how would they deal with the issue of prisons if they could? Uh, they don't seem to be very concerned about order at all, nor, nor do they seem to recognize the trade-offs between uh, justice and order. You can't have everything all at once. So, that's how, that's how I respond to that. <laughs> but, but, you know, I, I, I think, I think uh, you know, uh, we would Sorry, both agree, though, they do have a role to play. Yes. Right. I mean, here's the thing is that you could have played that role without the name Black Lives Matter, I think. Mm. And I mean, I think the video circulating of black people and white people getting shot by cops are visceral enough 
to be, I mean, listen, the civil rights movement was quite successful using humanist rhetoric and colorblind rhetoric, mostly. Right now, the term colorblind is a right-wing talking point rather than, as you put it, it's a centrist point of view, or it's definitely not an MLK Jr. point of view. Only because the left has rejected it. Not because, not because it came from right-wingers to begin with. I mean, it ca- like the idea of colorblind humanism has its origin, at least in the American context and, and the American racial context, with A. Philip Randolph, the socialist who started the March on Washington movement, Bayard Rustin, Martin Luther King. You can find dozens of quotes from these people where they harp over and over again about the fact that it's not a matter of black and white. It's a matter of humanity, brotherhood. We are all one beneath the skin. That is something that came, if anything, from left-wing socialists in the American context. At this point, it's, it's gotten to the point where if you say that, you are a conservative, probably. Although I think there are a lot of people on the left who still secretly believe it, but are afraid to say so. For example, Bernie Sanders a few months ago said, almost quoted Martin Luther King directly when he said, we should not be looking at politicians based on their skin color, but based on their policies, their expertise, what they're going to do. And he got mocked the night after on Colbert's show, which is not some radical left-wing outlet, right? That's like bread and butter, sort of center-left American media. Um, So the left has rejected colorblindness, more or less, but it's not because it's an inherently right-wing idea. Interesting. Um, I want to talk about free speech. Um, Have you seen Dave Chappelle's latest special? Yes. Um, Do you think that there is a, a tipping point that we've come to now. Few big names no longer care about uh, the PC culture. They're going to say whatever they want. Um, I've been told there's a few other uh, Netflix specials that Bill have Burr. a similar tone, Bill Burr's, yeah. uh, which I haven't seen. That's good. Um, what, 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 do you think there's, a, there's been a tipping point now? More people will be outspoken? I don't know. It's a good question. I, I try not to make predictions. <laughs> because you know I just have no sense of what what where things are going to go but I'm glad to see it uh one thing one thing I will say about Chappelle's special I thought it was good I also thought it was worse than the ones he did in the past 2 years um I felt that he was in a way letting his critics determine what he could talk about because he, he harped on the trans issue precisely because he got so criticized for it last time, which I understand from a free speech perspective. I'm going to talk about the very thing you don't want me to talk about, especially when a lot of perhaps the majority of Americans roughly agree that I can talk about it this way. On the other hand, I feel like he should just talk about what he thinks is funny and ignore his critics rather than talk about specifically the things he gets criticized most. But that's... That's just what I want to hear as a fan. So, um, do you think more comedians should do just that? Like, or, I mean, earlier today, I played you a clip from Eddie Murphy, um, one of the most celebrated, uh, you know, comedy specials. Uh, you know, I don't know, have you seen the, the special? So there, there are some moments where some of his sort of uh, comedy, it's funny, but when he keeps 
going on about it, you do feel a little uncomfortable. Um, but that's part and parcel what comedy should be. Or do you think comedians should uh, talk less about, say, race, rape, LGBTQI, etc., subject matter? I think part of what makes America great is that we have a culture of stand-up comedy. Stand-up comedy is a bizarre and rare thing. Around the world, the, the, the first thing that dictators crack down on are journalists and stand-up comics. Uh, I think when, when, what gets me in a patriotic mood is not so much thinking about the flag and the troops, although I can catch that feeling once in a while. It's thinking about like America's very open culture to our, our free speech culture. The fact that we like stand-up comedy was sort of born here recently as an art form and people love it. And we have the kind of culture that protects it. So, I mean, I think, I think I do get very nervous when with cancel culture and comics that we won't sufficiently appreciate how special it is that we have this this sort of tradition and that will ruin it by insisting that comics not be comics like the, the point of a comedian is to make your diaphragm move up and down in that way that we call laughter they're not pundits we have punditry they're not moral philosophers we have moral philosophy it is a domain dedicated to making you laugh and 99 percent of people want it to stay that way it is only humorless journalists and intellectuals who want to colonize every sphere of public discourse and make it like their own they want to insist that comics be like them because i don't know perhaps there's some jealousy there that no one, that pundits are not funny, they don't make people happy, they depress people, and they want every sphere of society to be as miserable as theirs is. So comedy should be tackling anything and everything. So you, when it comes to comedy, you're a free speech absolutist. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, it, with comedy, it, it's often the case that you can joke about subjects that you can't talk about. And precisely the areas that the the commentariat fails to talk about well right like we have failed in many in many ways on the issue of race to have a adult and useful conversation however if you go see a great comedy show in new york you will hear comics talk about the issues that can't really be talked about politely because they're so great at navigating, bringing you right up to the line of what you can handle, taking things sideways, making you laugh at a point that if you had heard in an, in an op-ed would make you cringe. So if we can't talk about it in comedy, then we can't talk about it at all. Um, you revel in moral philosophy, talking about race, very deep and meaningful uh, subject matter, sometimes controversial for some people. Um, in day-to-day -day life, what gives you meaning? Laughing with friends. Um, just hanging out with friends and 
having great experiences with people I love. Uh, you've mentioned, uh, I think, at an interview, your experience of MDMA. I think one of your uh, tracks, and for those who doesn't know, Coleman is also a fantastic rapper. Thank it you. It was discovered uh, <laughs> after your um, public, uh, you know, testimonial. Uh -huh. uh, people found it and you try to use that as um, an attack point, but you happen to be good at it, so <laughs> it didn't, kind of didn't work out. Um, so the point, the question I was going to ask is, um, y you've mentioned in one of your tracks about going on a silent retreat. Mm. Um, the, the questions are, you know, so MDMA, silent retreat. Mm. You seem to have this almost another life that kind of doesn't really, uh, for the narrative of you, the subject matter you're talking about, mm. there's a there's a different you. Mm. Is there a Coleman Hughes, the intellectual, and you know, there's a, there's another personality of yours that's completely removed from all this and you just want to be on your own and do your thing maybe yeah but they're related in the sense that i don't think i would be doing this if i weren't doing that um i've fallen off the wagon a little bit with meditation recently but i found it very useful in life i've also found mdma very useful um i've done it maybe four times and i try to you're supposed to wait three months between when you do it but I think it's, uh, a, I think in five year, five or 10 years, people will be trying to get their children to do MDMA. I swear to God, Christ. that's a, that's a prediction I will make. <laughs> that's a prediction I will make. It's in the, it's in the final stages of FDA approval for curing PTSD right now. Right. It's been classified, which rarely happens as a breakthrough therapy because it works better than SSRIs, better than anything else that's that people have tried to use to cure um, PTSD, treatment-resistant PTSD, which is unsurprising to me, because having done it many times, it it allows you to deal with the issues that keep you up at night, the parts of yourself that you hate most, in a way that is really unique. Uh, you, I think you can make the equivalent of years of like therapeutic work on yourself in a night, which is why all of these, you know, uh, you know, shell shocked veterans are coming back and doing these MDMA trials now doing two sessions with MDMA and a therapist and never coming back again because their PTSD is cured. Right. Right. Where do you, um, where do you stand with uh, psilocybin? I've done it twice and I know less about it. I had a bad trip with it, so I haven't really done it since then. But I've I've seen studies that, you know, that, that one study that gets touted about cancer patients at the end of life taking psilocybin and having really meaningful experiences with it. So I don't doubt that. In general, you're for yeah. psychedelic drugs? Very pro. De de with, with caveats, yeah. Okay. De definitely pro them being decriminalized. I'm not saying we should put them in the water supply. There are There are... You can have really bad experiences, especially with LSD and psilocybin, and I, perhaps DMT as well. I don't, I don't, I don't know. But with MDMA, it's very difficult. It's difficult, but not impossible to have a bad experience. I think the the thing with the mistake people make with MDMA is that they take it and they go to a rave and just enjoy themselves, and then get dehydrated and have a bad come down. 
if you just do MDMA and you talk to your best friend, it can be a very transformative experience. So, and it's one that I recommend to everyone, really. Right, right. So, so there's that. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, this has been an interesting conversation. We, we've, we've gone around a range of subject matter. Just to finish off, um, you're still writing for many publications. Um, what's in the horizon? Is there, are you working on anything? Is um, what's the next major project for Coleman Hughes? Uh, slowly working on a book, working on finishing college and enjoying my last year, working on new music. It'll all come out at some point, you know. And I believe there's a podcast at some podcast point. Podcast as well. Yes, yes that's, that's right. It's going to come down at some point. Very soon. Yeah. All right. Um, with regards to music, um, uh, are you going to release a EP album or just what's the plan? Is there any, or you just making music right now and see what happens? Unclear. Unclear. All right. Brilliant. Thank you so much, man. All right. I, I hope uh, it's been as fun as, as I had. This is great. Same. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Sweet. <laughs>